0: Please open your scriptures with me to Psalm 9. And thank you for praying uh, and your encouragement and the meals and the care and the visits while we walk this path this week. Uh, We really did sense the love and the kindness and the provision of Christ through this church. And I hope that when. As you have walked similar paths and as you will walk those paths, you will sense the same love of Christ from this local body of believers. That's what we do. We animate Christ. He is the head and we are the rest of that body that show his love and concern and grace to one another. And just like him, he is a very present help in times of need, in times of trouble. As Ethan already mentioned, 15 years ago, at least 2,985 people died in the September 11, 2001 attacks. 1,609 people lost a spouse. 3,051 children lost a parent. It was a horrific event that changed the world that we knew. And as Ethan commented, we probably can remember exactly where we were at when we heard of that news or saw the images for the first time. And we have already prayed. We opened up in prayer for our country. And I just want to take this moment to express our thanksgiving to the community servants that we have represented here at Highlands Baptist Church. Uh, We have several police officers, sheriffs, firemen, parole officer, highway state patrolman, nurses, doctors, other medical personnel, and several other volunteers. We're just going to take a moment to pray for them. Many of these put themselves in harm's way. Each week, several of our men are out at night. Uh, Several of our young ladies are actually uh, on night shift at hospitals. We have others who are being trained for this kind of work. So let's take a minute to pause. And ask God to protect them and to bless them as they continue to serve. Let's pray. Lord, you are a good God. And you are an eternal king. And you execute righteous judgment. And you are a stronghold for your people. And we praise You for the way You have watched over and protected us again this week and even today as we enter a new week. We especially entrust to You this morning our public servants who serve and minister in care in the very spirit that we saw on September 11, 2001. We thank You that You have raised up Godly people to serve in this manner. That we have the privilege of worshiping side by side with them as we exalt Your name together. I thank You for the way I have seen them selflessly serve and care even for those within this local body that reflects You. Give them safety. Protect them. May they reflect Your love And may they share the good news of Jesus Christ in the places where You have set them for Your glory. Protect their families. Calm spouses as they move into harm's way. Minister to the children who may not fully understand the danger or the care that these people are giving. Watch over and protect these families, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we remember September 11th, I just want to go through a few more events in the last several decades. Two years ago, on the night of April 14th, 2014, 276 schoolgirls were kidnapped in the town of Chibok, Nigeria. Eighteen years ago, before the September 11th attacks, the same group that we did not know then, that became notorious after September 11th, attacked the U.S. embassies in Kenya and Dar es Salaam, simultaneously bombing them, killing 258 people, mostly East Africans, and injuring more than 5,000. Twenty-two years before the September 11th attacks in our country, between April and June of 1994, an estimated 800,000 Rwandans were killed in the space of 100 days. Fishermen on Lake Tanganyika, when they troll, still hook into human skulls from that genocide. Yesterday and today, 90 people were killed, including 28 children, in Syria after a market was targeted and bombed as Muslims were celebrating what they consider the most holy holiday, Eid al-Adha, Here's the point. Because that's heavy. The point is a Christian's worldview, true followers of Jesus Christ, must look beyond our own street, our own neighborhood, our own city, our own state, our own country, our own race, our own language, our own preferences. Because our King, before He ascended, said, go, Make disciples of all nations. And as I was thinking through this, I wondered why we are so cautious to give a verbal witness for the good news that we say we believe in. And I think Ethan touched on it this morning in his introduction, and it's, I didn't give him my notes. You would have thought I had given him my notes with some of his opening statements and the big idea. But the fact is, through all of this, we, we doubt God. We wonder where God is at in such a broken world, don't we? With the genocides and the terrorism and the kidnappings. And in a thousand different ways, we wonder, is God really in control of this world? And if we're not sure about that, There is no possible way we're going to proclaim that to our neighbor or to the nations. If we are wondering if he's not completely good or if he's not completely in control. In the past 15 years, much like the centuries before, the world has continued its atrocities as humans under sin's curse have done ever since Genesis 3. Here's the big idea this morning. Even though it may not always be apparent in this world, God reigns now and forever. And because God reigns as the eternal righteous King and because He sits on the throne of heaven giving righteous judgment, there is hope. And isn't that what we need? We need hope. Because hopelessness leads into discouragement, depression, and doubt. And it's a muted witness. In Genesis 3, some of the saddest words are written. It says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Our first parents tried to live life without God. But even as they sank their teeth into what God said was forbidden, there's hope. Because in the same chapter where they chose willingly to do that, God gives a promise of a rescuer, redeemer, deliverer, and there's hope. And Psalm 9 is going to point us back to this one who is the Most High. In Genesis 4, Cain, the first child born of a woman, in anger rises up against his brother and murders him. What's interesting is sin did not need centuries to evolve to reach the depths of depravity. Sin is exceedingly sinful in Genesis 3, turns our first parents away from God and takes the firstborn child, rising him up against his brother and killing him. But Psalm 9 will remind us who's really in charge. The rest of Genesis 4 sets forth the picture of the first godless human culture the descendants of Cain, as they move east to a plain in Shinar, and they build a tower and they say, come, let us build a name for ourselves. All of a sudden you have a culture, a pagan secular culture, who says we're going to build a tower into the heavens for our name, not yours. And Psalm 9 is going to touch on this, and it's going to remind us whose name is great and who is the eternal king. You know, even now, if we just go, if we just leap from Genesis four to right now, everything is under God's control. North Korea's ambitions for nuclear weapons, Brexit and the fallout in the economies that surround it, the twenty sixteen United States elections all are under his reign. Do you believe that? I mean, we say we believe that. I say I believe that. But functionally, do I believe that? In all of this mess, is God just a God I profess because that's my evangelical tradition? Or is He truly the God I trust today in real time? How, how can we know? Well, ask yourself these questions. Test your heart to find out what or who your your true functional gods are. Just try to try to form an answer quietly, silently in your own heart. First question what or who do you trust right now? Or present tense, what are you trusting in? A safe culture? A home or a neighborhood that feels like a fortress? Person, what or who do you trust? What would make you feel secure right now? What would would it be that would just calm your anxiety and help you sleep at night? Third question, what have you praised this week? What, I mean, there's little things we praise. I understand that. New outfit, good meal. That's praise. But what ultimately are you praising, worshiping? Because the question is not, have you praised and worshiped this week? The question is, who or what have you praised consistently from Monday until now? We either love and praise God, or we love and praise something else. We either find refuge and safety in God, or we will search for refuge and safety in something else. And that something else, listen, will always disappoint. It will always underwhelm. Psalm 9. Praise to the Most High. We're going to read the first six verses. If you're a Bible marker, I want you to mark... Two sets of phrases. I want you to circle the I wills. These deliberate, purposeful, active worship statements. I will. And then I want you to notice what this worship is motivated by. And I want you to circle every time it says, you have. I will because you have. Okay, let's look at verse 1. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence, for you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. What are you praising God for today? How have you seen Him active in your life? Because He has done this. I will praise. And when we fail to realize through the course of any week or any day where God has actively been working, that affects our praise. Because you have done these things, I will praise you. Worship is a verb and a noun, but too often we make it a noun that we argue over and debate about when it ought to primarily be a verb. I will praise, I will worship, I will bow down, I will sing, I will dance, I will weep, I will cry. I will cast my anxieties on you because you care for me. I will recount all your wonderful ways and when I gather together in the house of the Lord, I will worship. I will ascribe worth to you because you're more important than how I may even feel about worship. And even when my feelings aren't in line with theological fact, God, because You are worthy, I will worship You. I will not remain silent. I will praise Your name. This calls for worship with an undivided heart. Look at verse 1. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. Without reservation, without hesitation. And do you know that freedom from worry and anxiety is one of God's great gifts to His children? But you have to believe and accept what the Bible teaches about Him. To trust God is to know Him, and those who don't really know Him do not trust Him. In verse 2, there's a title, God the Most High, Yahweh El Yan, possessor of heaven and earth, the mighty creator, upholder, sustainer, and owner of everything. Now there's security to be found in that. God owns everything. Everything I have, including the most important people in my life, He has given to me to steward. And when I love Him supremely, I will love them most. Not above Him, But there's no way if I make my wife or my children first that I can love them as much as I can as if when I make the most high first. Notice the contrast made in Psalm 9 between God's name and the name of those in opposition to God. Verse 2, I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. I just want to pause here real quick because I hear this more and more. One of the first, it's the third commandment in the Decalogue, what we know as the Ten Commandments, says, you shall not take the Lord's name in, what? Vain. You are not to use the Lord's name in a worthless way. In an empty way. And I hear more and more Christians saying, oh my God, oh Jesus!" Even the euphemistic forms. Oh, gosh darn. And folks, if we're going to sing praise to His name, even what James says, praise and cursing cannot come out of the same mouth. Do we reverence His name? And it's an interesting fact I was sharing with one of my sons yesterday. I I never hear anybody take Buddha's name in vain. Like, oh, Buddha. They just don't do that. Or Confucius. Smash your finger, cry out, oh, Confucius. They don't do that. Why? It seems very evident to me there is a satanic strategy for even God's people to use his name with irreverence, as a joke, with hollowness. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Now look at verse 5. Look at the contrast. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. An interesting detail arises out of Genesis 11. Let's build this great tower. Let's, in our pride and self-confidence, burn bricks and build a construction plan for our own name. No, you have blotted their name out forever. Do you know Do you know any of the construction workers? Right now, can you recall any of the construction workers that built the Tower of Babel? Unless they're recorded in Genesis 11 as architects or builders, you have no recollection of who they are. But remember, we were going to build a tower for us, lest we be dispersed throughout the whole world. Well, what was God's divine design that we procreate and scatter over all the earth? And already in Genesis 11, they're saying, no, God, we're going to make a name for ourselves. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Verse 6, the very memory of them has perished. That's why we recount God's works. That's why we even look back and we recount what happened on the plain of Shinar. We recount His fame. We exalt His name. This brings us to the next section. It begins in verse 7. It begins with a preposition to emphasize now the contrast Yes, of names, but also a contrast between God as, as, and His enemies. Look at verse 7. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. By the way, what happened with the enemies? There's no, there's no memory of them. But the Lord, He sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice. And He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Do you see the repetition of words? Judge, judge, justice, stronghold, stronghold. Look at verse 10. And those who know your name put their trust in you. Do you know that experientially? That's what Paul prayed. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed into His image at His death. In His death. Do you know His name? That He's a good shepherd? Do you know His name? That He is God Most High? Do you know His name as He sits on a white horse in Revelation? King of kings? Lord of lords? Look at verse 10. Those who know Your name put their trust in You. For you, O Lord, you have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among all the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. So here's here's the distribution of words. Enthroned, enthroned is used four times in this one section. Stronghold is used twice. Justice and judges is used three times. You combine all those words together, you have this repeated and unmistakable emphasis. One, God's reign is eternal. Which means right now, as we breathe, and as we sit in this group, and as all the events of the world are transpiring, guess who is right now reigning? Do you believe that? Because if you do, it will affect your, your decisions and your affections this week. It also emphasizes the righteous character of God's judgment. And it also emphasizes the provision of safety for those who trust in Him. God is eternal and impartial. Human beings are partial, aren't we? We come to very harsh, quick judgments with partial information. We come to unfair conclusions to protect our advantages. We are respecters of persons. We protect relationships that may not be healthy for us simply to guard what we receive from them which makes us prone either to exploitation or bribery or both. And I want you to hear this. God is not that way. God is not partial. God has all the facts of your case. God is not moved by a bribe. God's judgment is not affected if I promise to write Him a check. He cannot be manipulated. Look at verse 7. Look at the second part of verse 7. He has established His throne for what? Justice. You say, well, I haven't seen justice in my case. Do you believe He's eternal? Do you believe he judges rightly? Do you believe he knows all things? Do you believe he is in control of all things? Then you can believe this too justice will be served. Verse 8 And he judges the world with righteousness, he judges the peoples with uprightness. So here we are. Here we are as God's children, and he cares for us. The text says he is mindful of us. So we can bring before this eternal righteous God our complaint, if you would, our case. God, help. And you have the assurance of Psalm 9 that He hears you and He will act. Peter reminded the household of Cornelius of this in Acts 10. He says, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation... Anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. As for the word that He sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. Whereas as the writer of Hebrews reminds us, humans will perish, but you, God, remain. They will all wear out like a garment. I mean, don't garments wear out? We don't see this as much maybe in America where everybody's buying new outfits all the time. My favorite jeans, almost, not yet, and I have someone very close to me that would disagree, they almost need to be thrown out. Because the pockets are all worn and they're, and they, they're all frazzled at the bottom they, and they're not cool looking to you know this generation. They're not hipster jeans. These are just good old jeans. And they're wearing out. They're comfortable, but they're wearing out. And in another two years, I will not be wearing these jeans in public. <laughs> like a robe, like a garment, they will wear out. But now he's talking about us. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you, you are the same and your years will have no end. The righteous judgment of God will be a terror to God's enemies. But listen, folks, to us, it is a comfort The word stronghold, used twice, is a precious word. The Lord is a stronghold, a tower to run into, a safe tower. A tower where no one can harm you. A tower where you are fully accepted and completely safe. When you're afflicted, oppressed, exploited, used, abused, and rejected, you may run to Him who is a high and strong tower and trust in His perfect judgment. Verse 10, God does not and will not forsake those who rely on Him. In verse 11 to 12, the praise of the godly rises out of their conviction that God cares. Look at verse 12. Well, just listen to this. I'm going to to keep out the part where He avenges blood, which is true, but I want you to hear the comforting part. Verse 12, for He is mindful of them. That's you, by the way. If you fear Him and trust Him and believe in His Son... He is mindful of you. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Well, that's going to launch us into the next section. Look at verses 13 and 14. And the psalmist makes a personal plea. Look at verse 13. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. You see the the contrast between the gates. Sometimes our adversity feels like death. Psalm 23 addresses this. Even though I walk, I'm walking, I'm living, and even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not what? I will not fear. Why? Because those who know your name put their trust in you. Even... With the expression of the gates of death, he remembers other gates. Verse 14, the gates of the daughter of Zion. That's a metaphor for God's people, which are characterized by righteousness and salvation and rejoicing. And even though my adversity, my affliction, even though other people's hates have led me to what feels like the gates of Sheol. Lord, I'm going to praise you and remember the gates of the daughters of Zion and I will come and I will rejoice and sing praises. thousand years after the psalmist wrote this, hate would be poured out on the son of David, the Messiah, Jesus. He says this in John 15. Jesus states, "...whoever hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father." But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. And yet in the midst of this hate, the psalmist invites God's people to rejoice in God's salvation. The gates of the daughters of Zion. And that's really what Jesus' name means, isn't it? Yahweh is salvation. You shall call His name Jesus, for He will what? He will... He will save His people from their sin because Yahweh is salvation. And even in the midst of that hate hanging on a cross, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now look at the next section, verses 15 to 18. What will be spelled out now here is the doom of the wicked. Verse 15, The nations have sunk. What tense is that in? Too early for grammar in English, right? What tense? Past tense. They have sunk. It, it's a victory that is already done, already not yet, but the victory is viewed as an accomplished fact. Does that mean we don't pray? No, you're going to see that in the very last part where the psalmist says, Arise, Lord. No, but the victory is done. It's sure. In the pit they made, in the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. This is a universal principle of, of sowing and reaping. Verse 16. The Lord has made Himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Higayon selah. These are the notations in indicating that this little part is what the psalmist invited us to sing. So here's what you have. A little technical. You have a song within a psalm. So you have this overall psalm that invites you to sing these verses it's an odd text for a song i admit the wicked shall return to sheol all the nations that forget god for the needy shall not always be forgotten and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever it does not always happen immediately but it happens certainly If you try to live life without God, listen to me, if you do evil to one another, it may not always happen immediately, but the law of sowing and reaping will happen certainly. As Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote, though the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceeding small. Though with patience he stands waiting, with exactness grinds he all. Jesus says, with what measure you use, it will be what? It will be measured back to you. It's like the wicked Haman who swayed back and forth, dangling from a noose on the gallows that he constructed to kill righteous Mordecai. It doesn't always happen as fast as it did to Haman, but it does always happen. But Psalm 9 tells us there is hope. Look at verses 17 to 18. We'll not read them again, but this is what I want to capture from these two verses. The nations of men who forget God will themselves be judged and forgotten, whereas the hope and trust of the humble and meek will be remembered and rewarded. Look at the next two verses. Arise, O Lord. Now, wait, I thought the victory was complete. It is. They have sunk. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. You know, in the psalmist, this prayer, there's no hint of animosity or revenge. What's on the line is God's faithfulness to his own and God's justice to his enemies. That's the prayer. And so we can pray this too. Because if God does not judge His enemies even now in present tense, they will think they are gods without accountability. So we pray. Look at verse 19. Arise, O Lord. Yes, we're, we're praying from a platform of victory that has already been won. But we now pray in the midst of the conflict. Arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before You. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Two times he uses an interesting word for man. It's the Hebrew word enosh. It describes man in his weakness, in his frailty, in his limitations. In the midst of all of man's victories and conquests and wars and wisdom and genius, he is at the end of the day enosh. And he would do well to remember this because God remembers and God will judge. I'm going to close by reading a passage from John 5. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. That shouldn't be confusing to us because at least six different times, New Testament verses, quote, Old Testament passages where the name Yahweh is used and it is directly applied to Jesus Christ. Yahweh is still judging. But here the Father gives all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That's the hope Psalm 9 gives. So this morning, we should praise Jesus because he is the rescuer that was sent to deliver us from sin's curse. Galatians 3.13 Galatians our joy should be in Jesus because by grace through faith in Him we have been saved from the righteous fury of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Our joy should be in Jesus because God made His own Son who knew no sin to be a sin offering for us so that we now can have the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. We should praise Yahweh, because there is no condemnation for all those who are in Christ. Romans 8.1 Our joy should be in Jesus because God is for me in Christ. And if God is for me, then nothing and no one and no circumstance can truly be against me. Romans 8.31 We will sing praise to God this morning because on the cross the Father gave His own Son and in doing so, through Christ's resurrection, has defeated sin, death, and the devil, and has granted to us eternal life. That's the victory 1 Corinthians 15.57 talks about. And we will praise God this morning because He sent a Deliverer, Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, where one day soon, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord He's king, and they will do so to the glory of the Father, Philippians 2, 9-11. Let's pray. Before I close this in prayer, perhaps you have not confessed this yet or believed in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead. Perhaps you have doubted his character, and maybe that has even kept you from bowing your knee and believing in your heart the Lordship of Christ. And I want to encourage you to do that while it still matters. To believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, giving proof that He can forgive sin. We are justified by faith in Christ alone. This is a gift of grace.